It is indeed a joy and a privilege to be here, to be able to preach God's word to you. And I would say that uh, we at Calvary Grace, we, we consider the Harvest Church's key allies in the city of Calgary here as we are working together for the advance of the gospel. It's encouraging even to hear of your involvement in the Lilac Festival and just even to be able to pray with some of you uh, that the gospel would continue to advance and that the Lord would even give us beautiful feet to spread the message. Well, I'm going to read our text this morning. Let's flip to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, 1 to 6. So you can see it there with that nice fancy picture. Man, that's nice. Isaiah 53, 1 to 6. This is the word of the Lord. Some 700 years before Christ. Consider that. 700 years before the time of Christ. Isaiah 53, 1 to 6. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But... He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let's pray. So, Heavenly Father, as we, as we enter into your word now, as we're confronted by this almost overwhelming text, Father, I pray that you would uh, soften our hearts to receive your word. Father, open our eyes, reveal to us uh, just who this suffering servant is of, of Isaiah 53. We pray that you would show us Christ. Father, help me as I preach. Just pray that you would empower me me by your Holy Spirit and cause those even here who may not know Christ to see him and to believe. And I pray for the saints here that they would be encouraged and spurred on even to share this good news and to continue to look to Christ. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning by doing a thought experiment with you all. So what do you think of when you think of the word Savior? What comes to mind when I say that word, Savior? So probably if you're a Christian, you think of Jesus Christ, right? And that's natural. That's good. That's, that's awesome. If you're not a Christian here today, well, you're likely not thinking of Jesus Christ. You're likely thinking of of someone else or something else. But what I want you to try to do, if it's at all possible, is to put aside in your mind sort of all the Christianese notions and conceptions of what a Savior is like and think with me of what the natural human mind, in, in our natural human wisdom, what do we naturally think of when we think of the word Savior? Well, I would submit to you this morning that the natural mind, we naturally think of someone a lot more like Superman than Jesus Christ, don't we? See, Superman, he's out there with all of his special powers and abilities, and he's saving innocent victims, right? He's saving innocent victims that are oppressed by some evil person or circumstances. 
But notice the preconceptions that we have. A savior comes to rescue innocent people, right? I think that's what we naturally think of. So in the same way then, what do you naturally think of? Again, trying to put the, the, your Christian concepts, concepts aside of God right now. What do you naturally think of when you think of God? So for example, when we, when we look in the Bible, we, we read that God is, is strong. He's powerful. Well, when we see that, I think what we naturally do is we think of someone we may know who's very strong and powerful, and then we say, okay, well, so this guy is really strong. Well, if God is strong, God must be like this guy, except for a hundred times stronger, or maybe a thousand times stronger, or maybe even a million times stronger. But you can see the comparisons that we're doing, right? We're, we're, we're recreating God in our own image, right? So think of Zeus. Think of Zeus from Greek mythology. He looks like a human being, and yet he's really ripped, right? He's got big muscles. He's got white hair to show how wise he is. And yet, if you read into Greek mythology a little bit, you find out very quickly the amazing amounts of drama that he's involved in with the other gods and goddesses. So what do, what do we see when we, when we think of Zeus or look at Zeus? Well, you see what the natural human mind conceives of when we try to think of what God or the gods must be like, right? And I would say that these sort of figments of our imagination, they betray the fact that they are just that. They're figments of the human mind, okay? So why is that then? Why do we naturally think of God like that? Well, I'm going I'm to open up into our first point now. My first point is looking at the first couple verses. And my first point is this. No one is going to believe this. No one is going to believe this. It was interesting. Uh, Quentin just opened. We read, he read from Romans 10. And, and Paul in Romans actually asked the question when he quotes Isaiah. Who, Lord, who has believed our message? Who has believed our message? Well, he's quoting directly from Isaiah 53 verse 1 there. You can see it. You've got those two questions. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So you've got the Old Testament prophet Isaiah asking the question of the Lord and of the message that the Lord has given him. Lord, who is going to believe this? Who's going to believe this? What's implied there? Well, this message is simply too hard to believe. It's too hard to believe. It's not going to make sense to the natural human mind. And I would argue in our day, it's not going to make sense to our modern sensibilities. I mean, th this is a gruesome passage here, as we're going to see. This isn't going to make sense to our modern sensibilities. And in I Isaiah's day, Isaiah was commissioned as a prophet by God to speak to a people who would not get it. They're not going to understand it. This is what chapter 6 says when Isaiah is commissioned in chapter 6 of Isaiah. The Lord says to him this. He says, go and say to this people, this is verses 9 and 10, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So Isaiah goes with the message then. And so just a brief sort of overview, because since we're jumping straight into the middle of this book, very briefly, Isaiah goes to, to this people with a word from the Lord of the coming judgment. That's what he goes with. See, Israel, at this point in, in her history, she's been whoring after idols. 
So the idolatry of her heart has been exposed over and over again. And the Lord has been so patient with her. Remember, the Lord covenanted with her. And the Lord said, I will be your God and you will be my people. But at this point in the book of Isaiah, we can see that the people have been idolatrous, consistently idolatrous, over and over and over again. So Israel will go into exile. This is the message that Isaiah is bringing to the people. And yet, the Lord, in his merciful and compassionate nature, he gives them a word of hope, even before the judgment comes. A light at the end of the tunnel, as it were. So Isaiah actually gets to speak of the, of the Lord restoring the people back out of Babylon and into their own land, back into Israel. So there's a word of restoration coming as well. And beyond that, there emerges a message of salvation, not only for Israel, but for the Gentiles. So the Gentiles are all the other nations of the world. And Isaiah comes with this message of hope. So we're breaking in here into Isaiah 53. From Isaiah 42 to 53, you've got four servant songs. Some of you guys are familiar with those. Four servant songs. So these four servant songs, they're woven through the chapters of, Isaiah, of, of chapter 42 to 53. And they speak of a servant. They speak of a servant who will fulfill and accomplish the purposes of the Lord, right? And if you're familiar with them, you know that they're sort of confusing at times. It seems at times that, that the servant of the Lord is Israel. But then at other times, well, it speaks of a, a person in the singular, a servant in the singular, one person. So what's going on here? Well, we're looking at the fourth servant song, as I mentioned, Isaiah 53. And we're going to see that this is talking about a specific person. So to bring it back around now, Isaiah asks of, of his overall message, the whole book, but also of this message this morning that the Lord has given him to speak to the people, who has believed what he has heard from us? And what's the implied answer? The implied answer is no one. No one. No one, when left to themselves and their own human wisdom, their own natural conceptions of who God is and what he must be like, no one is going to believe this message. It doesn't match up with our expectations. It just simply doesn't. So you got the second question there now. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. I love that phrase, the arm of the Lord. So if you dig into the Old Testament a little bit, as I did when I was studying for this, I found out that this statement, the arm of the Lord, it's really an Exodus motif. It's an Exodus motif, and the phrase is used, or something like it, so, so this specific phrase or something like it is used 28 times in the Old Testament. So each time you read in the Old Testament, you come across this phrase, speaking of the arm of the Lord, you've got to picture the Israelites being reminded of the strong arm of the Lord as the Lord delivered them out of the bondage and slavery of Egypt. That's, 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 how, that's what that term, that phrase is loaded with, the arm of the Lord. So it's an Exodus motif. So take, for example, Moses in Deuteronomy 7. So the people in Deuteronomy 7, they're preparing to enter the promised land, and they're fearful. And this is what Mo Moses says to them. If you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, now here it is, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So will the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. So you see that there, how it's loaded with these, these exodus um, thoughts, right? As, as Isaiah is pointing the Israelites back to this time, right? 
So of these 28 times that that phrase or something like it is used in the Old Testament, Isaiah, he loves this term. He uses it 11 times in the book of Isaiah. So just for example, let's flip to Isaiah 51. You'll see the same thing. Isaiah 51. Isaiah 51, 9 and 10. He says this, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? So you can see it there, right? He's using the term, and it's, it's, it's making the Israelites remember, this is what the Lord did. He delivered us through the sea. That is the Red Sea. And now, though, in Isaiah 53 here, so with that in mind, Isaiah asks the question, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Well, what's being implied here with this question? It's being implied, once again, that the natural mind will not recognize this suffering servant as being from God. Okay? So left to your own wisdom, you will not recognize this, this suffering servant, as being the arm of the Lord. Why is that? Well, look at verse 2. It says four, so we've got a reason here. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. See, there's nothing spectacular about this suffering servant. He looked just like any other guy. There's nothing in him of himself that would draw your attention. There's nothing that, if you, if you walked by you, you would say, hey, that guy, look at the way he carries himself. That guy looks like a king. He could be a king. That's not what's going on here with this suffering servant. There's nothing impressive about him. Notice the kingly language there. No form or majesty. There's no form or majesty about him. So conversely to this, think of the description that, think of Samuel's description of King Saul. You remember King Saul back in the Old Testament before King David? This is what the description of Samuel is in 2 Samuel 9 verse 2. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now that sounds like a guy who could be king, right? And what did the Israelites do? Well, they saw him and they said, hey, you're going to be our king. You're really handsome and tall. We want you to be king, right? Well, it's not so with the Lord's servant. No one is going to believe this. You can remember Jesus came from Galilee, right? Jesus came from Galilee. So just to sort of illustrate this a little bit, Galilee of, of that Israelite territory, that's the hillbilly country for the Israelites, right? The impressive people come from Jerusalem. So that would be like me telling you that I think that a very influential world leader is going to come from Fort McMurray, Alberta, <laughs> right? You're not going to believe me. There's nothing impressive about that. And if you work at Fort McMurray, I'm sorry. No hard feelings. I'm a tradesman. So he was too unspectacular. But worse than that, he was actually a reject. Not only was he unnoticeable, he was actually a reject. So this is point two. Rejection of the suffering servant. This is verses three and four. Look at verse three. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So just think with me now of what we know about Christ and his experience in the Gospels, even as he entered public ministry. So for example, you have in John chapter 1, 
verses 9 to 11, John says this, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. See, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Consider Matthew 13. So Jesus is back in his hometown, his hometown synagogue. He would have grown up here learning the word of the Lord, learning the law. He's back in Nazareth in Matthew 13. And this is what the people say after he's done speaking. Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And, not our, and are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters here with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. They took offense at him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Consider another passage from Mark 5. The healing of the demon-possessed man in, in the region of the Gerasenes. You guys, many of you are familiar with that story where the demon-possessed man comes rushing out as Jesus and the disciples come to the, to the shore or the boat. And, and, and Jesus heals this demon-possessed man. He delivers him from demon oppression, demon possession. And what does Jesus do? He sends those demons. Well, they actually beg him. They say, let us go into the pigs. And Jesus allows them to go into the pigs. And the pigs rush down the steep bank and they plunge to their death in the sea. You guys are familiar with the story. But what, what do they do at the end of that? What do they do after, when the townspeople come, what do they do? Mark five seventeen, And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. <laughs> Imagine that. I always find this story so haunting when I read it. Just imagine, you've got the eternal Son of God, the incarnate Son of God, standing in your midst, walking in your region. He's right there. He's the Savior of the world. And what's the natural response? Please, get out of here. We don't want you here. Please, just leave us alone. But then this is really what anyone does when they dismiss the gospel, isn't it? When confronted by one's sin and the holiness of God and the salvation that is available in Christ, the natural response is always, please depart from me. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Consider John 6. John 6. John 6, 60 to 66. So Jesus is teaching his disciples. And what is he teaching them? He's teaching them that they must drink his blood and eat his flesh in order to have eternal life. This is what it says, John 6, starting at verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who, who, were, those, who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Now note this. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. 
He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And finally, of course, we have the crucifixion, the crucifixion itself. Mark 15, starting at verse 6, this is what it says. Now at the feast, he used to, so this is speaking of Pilate, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. So this is a murderer, Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So you have an innocent man is condemned at a mock trial and crucified. And a guilty and condemned man, condemned for murder, is let off the hook by the people. They would rather have Barabbas walking amongst them. See, friends... He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. But notice verse four now. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. So notice in verse 4 there. So verse 3 speaks of, of this servant having griefs and sorrows. And yet verse 4 says that those griefs and sorrows are actually not his specifically. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And yet, not only did we reject him, he must be rejected by God too. So notice the trajectory of this, this servant. At first, he's unspectacular and you don't notice him. Also, he's a reject. We reject him. More than that, he must be rejected by God. Look at him. He's got to be rejected by God. See, the leaders of the Jews, they knew that if they could just get Jesus to be crucified, specifically crucified, not a different form of of Uh, execution, specifically crucified, it would prove to all the other people that are thinking, ah, this guy, I I wonder if he is the Messiah. Well, no, if we can get him crucified, this will prove that he is under God's curse. This is why. Back in Deuteronomy 21, in the law, it specifically says, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. So just think of it now. What kind of savior is condemned as a criminal to receive the most barbaric, gruesome form of execution known to humanity in that day. What kind of savior is that? See, I think in our Christianese circles, we can get so used to speaking of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. And after a while, well, yeah, if the Lord has opened your eyes, it makes sense. And yet to the natural mind, a crucified savior is an oxymoron. A crucified savior is an oxymoron. A real savior has power to rescue people. They don't get killed by their enemies. See, the Jews wanted a savior who would come with impressive military power and charisma and 
and, and raise up a revolution, a rebellion, and get rid of the Romans. Remember, Israel was occupied by the Romans. That's what they're looking for. That's the type of savior that Israel was looking for. I think in our day, the type of savior we're naturally looking for, because we think of ourselves as innocent victims, we're looking for that super-duper politician who's, who's going to lead some type of revolution to get rid of all oppression against, against us as innocent victims. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but increasingly, we are living in a culture of victimhood, right? I am so oppressed. I'm so oppressed. I need someone to come save me from this oppression. We're not naturally looking for a man of sorrows who was crucified on a cross. When left to ourselves, we will always reject such a savior. Not only will we reject him, he must be rejected by God too. That's the rejection of the suffering servant. Point three is the recognition of our sins. Verses four and five. So notice the shift that takes place here now. There's a fascinating shift that takes place as you work your way through this passage where it seems that the person who has heard the message, is slow, their, their eyes are slowly being opened up and they're realizing what is really taking place. You can see it in verse 5 there and it starts with the word but. But he was pierced for our transgressions. Notice the substitutionary language here. Very clear. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Undeniable substitutionary language. See, there's a transaction taking place here as the receiver of this word begins to see what is actually taking place. See, if you're a Christian here today, notice what your contribution is. Notice what my contribution is. What, what do we bring to the table in this transaction? Transgressions, iniquities, going astray, turning your own way. And here's what we need to realize about this going astray. It's not out of ignorance. It's not out of negligence of the shepherd. It's out of our willful disobedience. See, this language, it actually presupposes that the sheep have been very clearly shown the right way to walk on, but they've chosen otherwise. So let me illustrate this um, just quickly. If I was to give my son when he's older, because he's still too young, but if I was to give my son some money and, say, and I told him, okay, can you go to the, the corner store and grab um, some milk for us? We need some milk. If I was to give him, though, very clear directions and very clear warnings to stay away from the wrong side of town, to, to not cross over the wrong side of the tracks, well, he's been very clearly shown the way that he should go. Now, as he's going to the store... As he goes along, if he chooses to stray and go to the wrong side of town, if he chooses to go onto the wrong side of the tracks, what has he done? Well, he's, he's turned away. He's turned away. So you can see how that language presupposes being shown the right way. This was certainly true of Israel in Isaiah's day, as I've mentioned at the start. The Lord, Yahweh, had led his sheep the Israelites, into green pastures. He led them beside still waters. They'd been brought out of a place of bondage and death out of Egypt. They'd been brought into a place of freedom and life and liberty in the promised land. This was all under the great care and guidance of the Lord's hand. He'd shown them great protection and provision as he covenanted himself to them, just like a marriage covenant. He had covenanted himself to these people. He'd lavished undeserved kindness upon his people. This isn't something that the Israelites had somehow earned. 
right? No, it was because of God's overflowing mercy and grace that he brought them out of slavery. He brought them out of the despair and misery of bondage to slavery in Egypt. Because that's what God's like. He's overflowing with mercy and grace. So you can see they've been shown great care and oversight. They've been shown the right paths to walk on. They've been warned and directed away from certain areas that could cause them harm. More than that, the Lord had rid the pastures of harmful predators, right? He'd put a hedge around them in which they could flourish. He'd show them so much love and care. So what I'm trying to emphasize here is the sheep were not ignorant and the shepherd was not negligent. There was a very clear comprehension of the right path. They had experienced God's love and mercy and grace. And here's the alarming part. Being very clearly cognizant of the right way and of the shepherd's care and guidance and love for them. The sheep had taken a long look down that right path that they had been shown. And in their hearts, they despised the shepherd and they turned to their own way. Just to reinforce this, let's flip to Isaiah 30. It's very clear, Isaiah 30. Isaiah 39 to 11. This is a description of Israel. For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. That's the description of Israel in Isaiah's day. And I would say, if that is not a frightening description of our own culture, man, I don't know what is. I don't know what is. You see, we have all been shown great care and guidance from the Lord to varying degrees. This is where it starts to hit home, though. If you're a Christian here this morning, you know from your experience before you were saved that the more care and guidance and counsel you received from the Lord through his word, the more you despised it and turned away to your own way. Wasn't that your experience before you were a Christian? That was certainly my experience. So the more care and guidance you receive from the Lord, the more your iniquities and your sins began to increase and snowball, right? This is the tragic thing about humanity. See, there's a direct correlation between the care and guidance that one has received from the Lord and the increase of sin and guilt and iniquity and transgression. There's a direct correlation there. We rightfully deserve to walk off the cliff. We rightfully deserve to. And it's not owing to the shepherd's negligence or our ignorance, but to our disobedience. To our disobedience. This is what the commentator Alec Matir uh, says concerning this, this uh, verse. He says, A choice was presented to us, and we chose the path of deliberate, conscious, willful rebellion. We sinned because we wanted to. We sinned because we wanted to. See, herein lies the death blow to any of our ill-conceived excuses for our sin. You see, as sinners, the outward acts of sin are merely symptoms of a much deeper problem. The acts of sin overflow out of a sinful and rebellious heart against the Lord. A heart that is consciously chosen to reject God. And we would choose rather to spit in God's face 
and turn our own way. This concept is actually powerfully illustrated in one of the final scenes of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. So many of you are familiar with those, that, that trilogy. So Sam and Frodo, they finally made it to Sam, Mount Doom, right? Frodo's got the ring in hand. So after all of the trials and struggles, I mean, through all, the first two movies, right, and even into the third, they're finally there. And Frodo stands on that precipice overlooking the lava which flows beneath. And what does he do? He just needs to simply cast the ring into the lava and all will be well. What does he do? Well, he hesitates. He hesitates. And what is Sam, what's his response? He's wondering what what he's doing. He yells at him, throw it in. Just throw it in. And what happens? Well, Frodo's expression changes on his face and he slowly turns to Sam, and you can see he's had a change of heart. He's not throwing that ring in the lava. And what does Frodo say? The ring is mine. The ring is mine. He knows the right way, and he deliberately chooses to turn aside. See, the only difference with using that illustration, though, is in the movie, this is sort of... uh, understood as a slip-up, right, in, in Frodo's otherwise stalwart character. The problem when we look at our own hearts, though, naturally when left to ourselves, is we consistently go our own way. We consistently go our own way. It, it characterizes our behavior. So I hope you can see here that there is a very clear recognition of our sins in verse 5 and 6. So what does that mean then when we're trying to conceive of who God is and what he must be like? Well, to have a right understanding of God and what a true Savior must be like, it requires honest self-assessment and the realization that we are guilty sinners under the gaze of a holy and righteous God. A holy and righteous God who cannot and will not tolerate sin. So that's the recognition of our sins. We'll move on to point four now. Revelation. Revelation. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Well, notice that phrase at the end of verse six. The last two lines of verse six. Who is making this all happen? Well, it says, and the Lord... The Lord, Yahweh, has laid on him, that's the servant, the iniquity of us all. This is God's doing. This is God's doing. Look at verse 10 of Isaiah 53. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. He has put him to grief. So you remember verse 4. Remember the way that we naturally esteem this suffering servant. We esteem him as stricken and smitten by God. You know the irony behind that verse? The irony behind that verse is it's actually true. He was smitten by God. But he was smitten by God not in a way that we would naturally think. See, the conventional wisdom of the human mind does not see Jesus Christ on the cross and naturally think that must be the Savior of the world. We naturally say this with the Jews in Matthew 27. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others. He cannot even save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. What kind of savior can't even save himself? What kind of savior who claims to be the son of God isn't protected by God his father? What kind of savior just allows himself to be brutally executed while supposedly having the power to kill all of his enemies? Well, friends, 
This is the kind of savior that you and I so desperately need, but we're not even looking for. We're not even looking for him. Jesus is the kind of savior who doesn't save himself because in laying his life down, he's saving others. Jesus is the kind of savior who takes upon himself the punishment that we rightfully deserve from God, his father. Jesus is the kind of savior that allows others to brutally execute him, though he could have easily stopped them and killed them because he's actually dying in our place. See, friends, in the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, the savior of the world comes into his own creation under the radar to save those who despise and reject him and do not at first recognize him as God. This is how Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 1. Considering the wisdom of the human mind. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. I love what the commentator Alec Matir says concerning this suffering servant. So speaking of the Exodus, again, think of that phrase, the arm of the Lord. He says, the acts of the arm of the Lord were seen, so the acts were seen, while the arm itself remained invisible. So think of the 10 plagues, right? You're witnessing this, these, these amazing judgments come upon Egypt. So the acts themselves are seen, but the arm remains invisible. He goes on, he says, But now it is not a matter of tracing events to an invisible cause, but a matter of seeing a person, the servant, and recognizing that he is the Lord present in power. Imagine that. The arm of the Lord is revealed in a person. Jesus Christ is the strong arm of the Lord, mighty to save. Let me close with some applications. If you're a Christian here today, you have come to recognize that this suffering servant is in fact your sin-bearing substitute. God in the flesh to save you from your sins. And yet, we can't miss this. This text reminds us that you and I, we did not come to this conclusion on our own because we're so amazing and smart, right? We have recognized, you have recognized, if you're a believer, that Jesus Christ is the strong arm of the Lord because God has revealed him to you. That's in answer to the second question there, right? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? If you're a believer, the arm of the Lord has been revealed to you. I think it's so easy for pride to creep into our hearts as Christians. When we look around and we look at this, this broken, sinful world, and we, we can just think, man, why don't you guys just get it? Jesus is the Savior. You just need to believe in him. See, all we have contributed, friends, is our sin. That's, that's our contribution here. It's our sin that, Jesus, that, that put Jesus up on the cross. But for the grace of God, but for the grace of God, if you're a believer here, you would still be going astray. What does this mean for your evangelism? So you guys are doing this church plant down here, and it's greatly encouraging to see but I have no doubt that some of you guys are probably feeling discouraged just about the evangelism that you've been a part of where people have been re consistently rejecting the gospel. They've, they've consistently 
been rejecting Christ. Well, I want to encourage you, you all this morning, even as you, as you work together to see this church plant um, come to fruition and the Lord to spread the gospel through you guys, let me encourage you to continue to plead with the Lord. Plead with the Lord that he would reveal the strong arm of the Lord to the lost in this city. Just like you guys are doing at the Lilac Festival, even in the south part of the city here. Continue to plead with the Lord to reveal Christ to the lost. If you're not a Christian here today, I've got some questions for you. Are you coming to the point where you recognize that you're a sinner? Do you recognize how far you've strayed from God's ways? Do you recognize that your sinful thoughts and actions are really indicative of a much bigger problem? Namely, that you have a rebellious heart that will not bow the knee to God. And do you recognize that you are in fact condemned right now under his just wrath? Well, if you're starting to recognize this, this is good news. This is good news for you. And I would just plead with you to look to Christ. Look with us. Look with the other believers here. Look, at, look with us as we see him hanging on the cross in our place. You don't need a superman who's going to save you from your oppressors. You need a sin-bearing substitute who has died in your place, taking the punishment that you deserve, exhausting it so there's none left. You need that, you need that servant to save you from, a, from an eternal hell into an eternal heaven where you will be reconciled to God and enjoy eternal life with him. So look to Jesus Christ. Look to Jesus Christ and you may just find as you look upon him at that cross, you may just recognize that he's your savior. Let me close with this. Isaiah 52 verse 10, this beautiful verse. Isaiah 52 verse 10. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. That's the salvation that is found in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we marvel at this hidden uh, rescue mission of the suffering servant, the suffering servant who comes in under the radar, unrecognized, unnoticed, rejected, and yet dying to save sinners. We praise you for your wisdom and for your power, even your mighty arm that is revealed in Jesus Christ. I pray for those who don't know you here, that, they would, that you would reveal to them Jesus Christ, and they would call out to him and be saved. And Father, I want to pray for the saints here, that you would encourage them and uh, cause them to continue in this work down here, this good work to which you have called them, Father. Continue, cause them to uh, persevere. And we pray, Lord, that you would reveal your strong arm to the lost in this region. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.